The Varsity Blues college admissions scandal recently rocked the world of higher education. You might be familiar with it. It took down a number of titans of industry, actors, actresses, even Aunt Becky from Full House went down in this scheme that was, unveiled, that was uncovered by the feds. Parents who were desperate for their children to be admitted to elite schools, they funneled millions of dollars of bribes to standardized test administrators and to school officials, all in an effort to secure a place for their children in these schools. Many of you know that college applications are stressful. Students try to put their best foot forward as they submit applications that showcase their academic and extracurricular accomplishments. And many times the material in these applications has been carefully curated, all with an idea towards seeking an edge that will separate that applicant from all the others. In the case of the Varsity Blues scandal, there was little extra that was needed for the application to stand out. And that's where the corruption took place. Thankfully, as Christians, we know that when it comes to knowing God through Christ, we do not have to carefully craft our, our application. We do not have to find a way in order to present ourselves to Him that will make us acceptable. No, in His perfect righteousness and by His death for our sins, Jesus has covered all that we need to come before God. Nonetheless, what if I told you that the danger that we face is perhaps not trying to make ourselves too lovely for Him, but actually by thinking ourselves, not trying to make ourselves, not thinking ourselves too unworthy, excuse me, but actually thinking ourselves too worthy. For him. Because we refuse to humble ourselves under his authority. Luke 7, verse 18 to 35, exhorts us do not let stubbornness keep you from Jesus. Let me say this again Luke 7, verse 18 to 35. Do not let stubbornness keep you from Jesus. I invite you to follow along as I read. Follow along quietly. And let us hear these words recorded for us in the wisdom of God that are given to us for our good. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This ends the reading of God's Word. May He write its truths upon us and show us the sufficiency of our Savior in His Word. In this passage, we see three ways that our spiritual stubbornness manifests itself. If you're following along or keeping notes, those three ways are unbelief, unrepentance, and unwillingness. First, we see unbelief in Jesus that is rooted in despair. You see this in verses 18 to 23. If you recall last, last Sunday's sermon text, in Luke chapter 7, 1 to 17, Jesus worked two great miracles. He healed a diseased man who was very near to death, and then he raised a dead man back to life. Now, understandably, after Jesus has worked these miracles, particularly raising a dead man to life, the buzz that was spreading about Jesus has developed and has spread into a full-blown craze as people are captivated by this man and want to see more. And so in line with word about Jesus spreading everywhere, John the Baptist, do you remember him from back in Luke chapter 3? In Luke 3, John was preaching of the need for repentance, for forgiveness for sins. But his own preaching got himself in trouble. You see, the Roman authorities had no problem with John preaching that the people of Israel needed to repent. But when he turned and looked at them and said, and you need to repent too, that's how John received a one-way ticket to prison. So John is languishing in prison, and he hears all these rumors, all these murmurings, all these, all these things going on about this Jesus outside the walls of prison. And so he summons a couple of his disciples. And in verse 19, he called them and he sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? What has happened to John? Think about this. Back in chapter 3, he's boldly preaching and his ministry was knit very close together with Jesus. And now he's apparently wondering, are you the Messiah? Is there another one that we should be looking for? What's happened to John? Well, the answer is that he's been in prison. 
Can't you imagine the angst that his soul felt as day after day after day behind bars dragged on? Imagine the loneliness and the despair of his heart as cold night after cold night after cold night seemed to be unending during his time in prison. We don't know this for certain, but this reads as if John began to doubt whether this Jesus whose power he had seen was truly the Messiah. Because from his perspective in a Roman prison, his circumstances were not changing much. So John sends two disciples to inquire. And look at how, this, how, how the response is made in verse 21. Verse 20, they ask Jesus this question. In verse 21, it says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered, him, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and, are ra- and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Perhaps you picked up on this, maybe not, but in, this is Jesus quoting from Isaiah chapter 34, verses, four, verses 5 and 6, as well as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. There were prophecies that told of the Messiah that, who, who was to come who promised to be a miracle maker, a wonder worker, the anticipated one that would rescue his people from their slavery, lift up the poor, give sight to the blind, heal the diseased, even raise the dead. And Jesus is saying, yes, John, it's me. Don't give up hope, dear brother. Remember, who, remember what you have seen in your Bible. And do not despair, my dear man. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that these miracles of Jesus serve as foretastes of the promise of eternity. These miracles are not too small. And our Jesus is not so weak that He is incapable of doing this. He does give the spiritually blind sight. He does help the spiritually crippled to walk in faith. He does it for those who are physically ill as well. Some in this life, but all for eternity. As Jesus told John's disciples these things, it is almost as if He is binding John's heart up and reminding him, remember what you heard in Isaiah. I am He. There is no need to look for another. This is a message we need. If you're new or newish to the Christian faith, I need to let you in on something that I hope you've heard before. I hope it's not a secret, but it's reality. There will come times in your life where you face discouragement and even despair, specifically because you cannot quite understand what God is doing in your life, in your family, in your world even. Be on guard that your soul does not start to subtly believe that the God that is revealed in the Bible is not the God that your experiences have revealed in that moment. Beloved church family, how frequently do our worries whisper to us in one ear, yeah, you've really gotten yourself into a mess this time. And then whisper even louder in the other ear, And God cannot help you with this one. 
despair fertilizes any seeds of unbelief that exist in our hearts. Now, there's a strange ending to Jesus' response to John. Now, I want you to see this in verse 23. Look at that. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's quite bizarre, isn't it? Let me read verse 22 and then 23 just to get the full context. And he answered them. Remember, John is asked, hey, are you the one? And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is a strange conclusion to this response to John. So what's going on? Well, well here's what we need to understand. This week's passage, Luke 7, 18 to 35, and next week's passage, Luke 7, 36 to 50, serve to illustrate what it means to have true faith in Jesus. So all throughout chapter 7 and 8 of Luke, uh, they have miracles and, and exhortations. So last week, miracle of raising a dead man and raising a man that was almost dead. And so you have these miracles that are worked that reveal the power of Jesus, but then Jesus follows up like with this, with exhortations that explain what it means to truly have faith in Him. And so we're chapter 7, verse 18 to 35, what does it do? It serves as a warning against stubbornness that would keep us from true faith. So the problem is, we, or, the, or the danger is, that we read the miracles of verses 1 to 17, and we say, I'll take that. Gives sight to the blind, gives life to the dead, he cleanses lepers, sign me up. I'll have a second helping, a third helping, a fourth helping. I'll eat it nonstop. All you can eat buffet of Jesus' miracles, please and thank you. But Jesus is saying, you've got to know how to receive me. Do you remember right in the thick of the pandemic, the federal government was issuing those economic impact payments to all who qualified. I think all told it ended up being three to $4,000 per taxpayer plus more for dependents and, and now table your feelings on the merits of such a program and the national debt, all of that. Hold all that to the side. When the program was announced, it was clearly explained what someone had to do in order to be eligible for or in order to qualify for such payments. Because the announcement and the existence of the program itself is of no power for you if you are not qualified to receive it. These stories serve to say, you want this Jesus? then here's the one, here's the heart that is ready to receive him. And this is where Jesus drops in here for John. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Once again, why would I be offended by his miracles? It's not the miracles that are the problem. It's the mind that John had that was detached from this. His life experience was not miracles. He's in prison. He's not seeing these great things happen. He's still behind bars. And he's getting closer to what ultimately would prove to be a sentence of death. So when it comes to how do I make sure I'm not offended by Jesus today, perhaps we should think, when am I offended by how the hand of providence has ordered my days? 
When does my heart shift from despair to disobedience, to distrust? When does my heart go from, God, I don't know what you're doing, to, God, you don't know what you're doing? When do I harbor anger towards God for all that He is doing in the marriage or the family over there, but not in my own? Or where am I offended by how God's Word calls me towards holiness and submission to His Word, even when it flies against so, much, so many of my 21st century sensibilities? It stings when dear family and friends reject our faith, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It gets difficult when the Bible's teachings on gender, sexuality, or marriage, which are considered backwards and outdated at best in our day, and at worst are considered entirely bigoted and harmful. It stings when those are held over your head by those you love. The danger, the warning for us is that subtly, stubborn unbelief is awakened when the social costs for following Jesus just seem a little too high. This is what leads to churches departing from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and this is what happens with professing Christians who are offended by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, whether it's in relationships with others who do not understand our faith, or despair that follows us around with the dark cloud of providence that we don't know what God is doing. We should know despair will come. We must beware of unbelief that follows in its shadow. So beware of unbelief that is rooted in despair. Second warning here as we consider stubbornness towards Jesus, we should see that unrepentance before Jesus that is rooted in self-righteousness. This is in verses 24 to 30. Unrepentance before Jesus that is rooted in self-righteousness. There's an interesting turn or shift in verse 24. Almost like the gathered crowd could be saying, what has happened to John? Why has his faith deteriorated to the point that it is in at this point? You know, these disciples have come, they're asking Jesus what's going on, but Jesus, in His love and in His mercy towards John, His servant, He seems to both affirm John as well as challenge His audience. Look at verse 24 and following. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This is implying that John was strong, he was resolved, he was steadfast. A reed is something that just bends back and forth and is whipped by the wind. No, John was standing athwart in the winds of, of, of opposition that told him to be silent on preaching the message of the glory and holiness of God. Isn't athwart a great word? You didn't even know it, what that meant. And then I used it, and you're like, yeah, that, that means exactly what it means. Standing strong in the face of strong winds that would seek to topple you over. Maybe you did know. Maybe you're smarter than me. He said, John wasn't a, a reed that could be blown over. He was strong. Look at verse 25. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Pause. No, you didn't go see a man dressed in a nice wardrobe, masquerading before crowds with great pomp and pizzazz. You saw John wearing discount knockoff clothes, wearing simple clothes, and his power was in the Word of God. 
not in his appearance. Continue on, the second part of verse 25. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, they're in king's courts, not John. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. And this is quoting from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Here's what Jesus is saying to his audience. He's saying, you were rightly captivated by this prophet, John the Baptist. And whatever you thought of this prophet, he's greater than that. However high you built him up in your mind, he's greater than that. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. But now I tell you that if you understand and follow me, that is greater than what John has seen. Jesus is revealing John is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He had a ministry that was similar to many prophets. Bold preaching, calling people to forsake their sin and turn to God. A rugged life pursuing holiness and righteousness no matter the cost. And even suffering at the hands of those that his preaching ministry offended. He was the last and the greatest of the Old, Testaments, of the Old Testament prophets. Don't take my word for it. That's what Jesus described him as. And yet Jesus drops verse 28 on us. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Anybody have a guess what that means? Jesus is not saying that you or I are of greater importance greater resolve in the faith than John. I don't know about you, I charge God with wrongdoing when I get a stomach bug. I stub my toe and don't know what God is doing. John is preaching boldly the kingdom of God. John's questions while in prison certain, certainly makes sense. Jesus is not saying we are more loved by God than John. Jesus is not saying we have greater faith than John. Jesus is saying that we stand on this side of the redemptive work that he has done. We aren't in prison grasping for news about him. We have seen the fullness of who he is. Jesus, the Son of God, is the promised Messiah. We do not stand a ways away trying to <coughs> excuse me, poke our head through the crowd and see his miracles. No, we are ones who are united with him by grace through faith, dwelling in the grip of God. And how are we united with him? There is a door through which we go from spectators standing afar to citizens of the kingdom of God. And look at verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You have many in the crowd, tax collectors, others, they pronounce 
this certain, sure, just. You see verse 29, they, they declared God just. They had come to God via repentance. Remember John in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, is preaching a message of repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. So they had come to God via repentance. They confessed their sin against God. And in so doing, they entrusted themselves to him by faith. But then you have the Pharisees and lawyers who did not come to him via repentance. They stood back. Do you remember John was baptizing in a river? They did not want to literally or metaphorically get themselves dirty in the waters of repentance. Now, repentance is a term that we throw around a lot in in a church setting, but we might have different understandings or different perspectives as to what it means to repent. Perhaps you come from a background where you think of it as a form of confession, where I tell somebody a wrong that I did. I tell a priest or I tell another figure a wrong that I did. And then it's off my conscience. But then the topic of sin forces us to ask this a little more because we see sin is revealed in Scripture in a manner in which it reveals that all of us have sinned. So we carry this sin that weighs us down, that rots our souls even. And yet we see that repentance is the means by which we come to God, but then we say, okay, do I just confess it? What do I do with this? Well, what we see is that our human condition is one where we need to be made new. And so repentance is the fruit of that work of God in making us new. So as God opens our eyes to our need for the Savior and the provision of salvation through Jesus, repentance is the means by which we are transformed by Him. Now, here's something that's interesting. As human beings, we don't want to acknowledge that we are far worse than we realize. And we don't want to give the appearance to others that we don't have ourselves as put together as we want them to think. So the Pharisees and lawyers in Luke 7, they stood far off because they didn't see their need for Jesus. They were entirely self-assured that the righteousness that they had inherent to themselves was sufficient to stand before God. But the crowd that had come by faith, the crowd that owned and repented of their sins, they are the ones who found Jesus worthy of following. Now, as Christians, we must be careful not to get the idea that repentance is something that we do when we first become a Christian, and then no more. Sometimes we can think of repentance as like a spiritual bath or shower. We get cleaned up, admit our faults, and then we go start and go about our new life. There's truth to that. Make no mistake about it. Repentance is an evidence of conversion, of new birth. But just like it's good for somebody to take a bath or shower, it's bad for them to only take one bath or shower. We need to bathe regularly. Repentance needs to be a regular part of our life. We don't take this one bath and then walk around in our Sunday best for the rest of our life. But no, repentance is actually less like a shower and more perhaps like a car wash that you're unendingly rolling through, where God is just doing this work of cleaning you up, of smoothing over the rough edges, of getting up under the wheel wells, of doing this work of exposing our sin and our rebellion against Him all the way until we enter glory. 
And so repentance is brought about by God revealing our need to be transformed by Him. And then just that practice of being transformed by Him continually, continually, continually until we reach glory. And so you have unrepentance that is rooted in self-righteousness that will keep somebody stubbornly away from Jesus. And then you have unbelief that is rooted in despair that will keep them stubbornly away from Jesus. And now as a summation of all that Jesus is showing us, we lastly see unwillingness to trust Jesus that is rooted in hard-heartedness. Verses 31 and 35, excuse me. Jesus gets to the heart of those listening to Him. They are simply unwilling to come to Him. Let's get to the root of it. Look at the illustration in verses 31 and 32. He says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Pause here. You, you can imagine children playing in a marketplace. You know, maybe you can picture, remember when you were a child and you would play ball out in the street? And like whenever cars weren't going up and down the road, you'd play ball, but then somebody would yell out, car coming, you have to clear off the road. You can imagine kids when the marketplace was not very full, playing out in the middle of the marketplace, but then as it started to build up more, they'd, they'd run back. Well, while in, in a time when it was not real full, they would, they would be talking about, oh, we played music, we played the flute for you, you did not dance, we sang a dirge, you did not weep. No matter what they did, they were not pleased. Jesus compares these different types of music to himself and John the Baptist. In verse 33, he says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Said another way, John came and he went full Old Testament prophet for you. All right? No wine, eating no bread, a man of the land, living out in the wilderness, preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you said he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, verse 34, eating and drinking. He's saying God has come that you might know Him, that you might enjoy Him. And you say, look at Him. A glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see what Jesus is revealing about His audience and revealing that we need to consider about our hearts? Ultimately, Unrepentance and unbelief expose unwillingness of the heart to trust Jesus. Instead of God transforming us, unbelief demands that we remake God into what we believe He should be. Unbelief and unrepentance stands out in the spiritual cold and refuses to come inside to be warmed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as we conclude, I want to share something with those of you who perhaps are not Christians, or perhaps you consider yourself a Christian, but you've been keeping Christ and even close fellowship with His people kind of off at a distance. I want to issue you a warning from this passage. Do you see how easy it is that you might use philosophical or scientific objections to Christianity? Well, I'm not so sure about this. Or cultural objections like we referenced earlier. Just the Christian faith as revealed in the Bible is just so out of step with our day. 
Do you realize, do you see how Jesus is showing us here how we can use these as a mask that actually covers up our unwillingness to humble ourselves under the authority of God and His Word? It's interesting, make no mistake, Christianity beckons those who will come to the faith to first carefully evaluate their life, carefully evaluate Jesus, count the cost of what it means to follow Him. And that's what we urge people to do. Jesus here also presses in on hearts and says, now be careful that you don't use objections that sound reasonable to mask the ultimate root cause of your unwillingness to surrender your life to me. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best in life. God, give me a sign. Help me to know you are there. The invitation stands before you to come to Jesus and find that he welcomes you into his arms of love. Do not let your objections about why the rain has fallen on your life in the manner that it has to be the objection that keeps you from the one who holds the clouds in his hand and offers you a smiling face behind that cloudy providence. You know, there's a false way that we all look at the consideration of whether or not we will trust God through Christ and walk in obedience to Him. We fail to see that unwilling, stubborn rejection of Jesus and His purposes for us is a decision in of itself. Yet this is what Jesus reminded those who rejected Him when He closed in verse 35. Look at that. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Strange saying. This is a cultural saying of that time that would have been better understood in Jesus' day than ours, but suffice it to say that the wisdom that we employ to make decisions that will guide our lives ultimately will be revealed in the legacy that we leave, in the fruit that is produced from our lives, in the children that are born of our lives, and what comes from us, the outcomes of these decisions. So, dear Christian, in one sense, the Christian life is a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute question of, will I trust the Lord today? What objections do you carry about the path that your life has taken that would hinder you from trusting the Lord? How do these objections that you mount keep you from trusting Him with what is still to come in your life? When despair is closing in around you, where can you turn? This is where, dear Christian, you and I desperately need the gospel. Because what the gospel reveals to us in this same Jesus who's addressing those who would stubbornly refuse to come to him, this same Jesus, not far from now, would be the one who would endure the despair of being forsaken by God his Father as he went to the cross. And in his cross, he earned and achieved the means by which we now come before God and do not have to despair. But we can know we are loved and we are cherished and we are protected as sons and daughters of God. In the same way, as we look before our Lord, as we see Him suffering, His blood shed on that cross, 
We can know when our hearts are stubbornly refusing to repent of our sin that because of what Christ has done in His cross, His blood metaphorically washes over our sinful hearts. Therefore, we don't have to worry about coming before God our Father and confessing our sins and repenting before Him and asking Him to transform us, worrying, is He going to look down upon us with scorn and with wrath? No, Christ has endured the punishment for our sins. So because of Him, our Father looks down upon us and brings us into His hand and nourishes us with the warmth of a father rocking his small child amidst her distress. And we can see our unwillingness that torments us day by day as the things of Christ go down and the concerns of the world are elevated. And we can say, in Christ, I can stumble before Him day after day, feeling so unwilling, so incapable in of myself to walk in obedience to Him, to walk in trust in Him. And I find a willing Savior who is able to carry me in my unwillingness. You do not need a carefully crafted resume or application to attract His attention. He has come. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. May God give us grace to forsake stubbornness that would keep us from our Lord.